Welcome to Oh No, Ross and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Ross Blotcher. I'm Carrie. Po- no, I'm Ross Blotcher. I thought I'd get you. Usually you get me. Okay, I'm Carrie Poppy. And today we continue our exploration of Scientology. Yeah. All things Scientology. Scientology. This is part. Journey. Our Scientology journey. This is part five. Can you believe it? Well, I'm you sorry asked for this it. Keeps happening. You asked for it. You wanted Scientology. You did. They we asked did for like five years. And we pretty sp- much five years. And <laughs> we spent a long time going to different Scientology establishments. So today we are going to tell you about another location in Los Angeles, and that is the Elron Hubbard Life Exhibit. Shin. Shin. <laughs> oh, is that what it's called? Life yeah. exhibition? Yes. Okay. So I called in advance uh-huh. and said, hey, uh, my friend and I, we want to visit the L. Ron Hubbard Life Exhibition. When's a good time for us to show up? And they said, what is your name and what is your friend's name? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so gave them our names. They always want to know that. Not weird. And wanted to know exactly what time we'd be there. Oh, okay. Well, we'll come in. Well, I think it was like seven or something. It was after work on uh-huh. a weekday. You'd think if they were going to ask your name so many times they'd google it but nope they just want to write it down to fill out their forms Mm -hmm. and then obsessively contact you later documentation you got to keep a lot of documentation if you're a scientologist (laughs) man yeah they take trees and they turn them into success forms and l ron hubbard books oh sad okay (laughs) true i had actually been to the l ron hubbard life exhibition (gasps) once before ah as had i Yes, but long ago. Yeah, same here. Long enough ago that I didn't have a clear memory of it. Many years ago. Yeah, all I remember is they actually did usher me out of the building at that time. It was my first time being ushered out by Scientologists. Uh, not last. Come to think of it, yeah. And it was because I I remember I found an e-meter and I turned it upside down and I was like trying to get inside of it. Uh-huh. And I'd kind of unplugged a few things. Uh-huh. They didn't like that. Not not trying to be a problem. No, you I was just... trying to be a potential trouble source. No, just a, an actual trouble source. <laughs> you were, no, you were trying to just see what it was. Yeah, well, you know, what's inside this thing? Yeah, I was curious. Sure. Uh, and they didn't like that. They didn't like that. Yeah, well, fair enough. And I had given them my cell phone number at the time never heard from them here's what i remember from going the only other time i went i went with my friend alicia we just uh, saw alicia we just did alicia's your friend too oh yeah uh, i married her you married her and her husband yes together <laughs> and i was her maid of honor big connection to alicia there when she and i went the only thing that i remember really vividly is that as we were leaving they were telling us about the purification rundown and ah. how powerful it is. The example that was given to me was some firefighters from New York who had uh, oh, worked in disaster, disaster relief during 9-11 who had taken in so much soot from mm-hmm. the fire that then when they did the purification rundown, I think she said like two years later, they were sweating out all of the soot and it just started appearing on their skin, just oh, black tar coming out. I've heard the story. I've heard it described as purple. Oh, purple okay. stuff coming out of that. And I and I was like, oh boy, that really like um it's counterintuitive, right? And she's like, Oh, I know. Well, you know, because sweat I don't think of as accessing like my liver or my kidneys or anything where I would hmm. assume toxins would be. They've got special methods, Carrie. Get yeah, how does it out. how does it come out and 
she just kind of took this as me like marveling at it instead of me actually asking. You know, yeah, so like, she's like, I know it's crazy. Those are great right? hypotheticals. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I mean, I'm asking I'm actually, how does this work? I'm actually stating uh, a problem what I, with your story. What, you, <laughs> what I'm saying is that's wrong. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Even in this tour, our tour guide uh, mentioned the firefighters and how I think. 4,000 of them were treated by Scientologists. Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway. So, All right. So we, we showed went. up. Yeah. We met up on Hollywood Boulevard. Hollywood Boulevard. That's where it is. And I, Hollywood. I'd gotten there. Lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? Yes. And guess who we brought? Yeah, that's true. There are Hollywood stars right in front of the building. That's true. On the ground. The Walk of Fame is right there. And not like Hollywood stars, like. Hey, like, Scarlett Johansson, you're oh, standing in front of this. Sorry, like, Johnny Depp. Is that your hand I'm standing on? Right. No, not that kind of no, stuff. No, just their literal stars. And we brought one Mr. Drew Spears. Drew Spears. My boyfriend office. Yeah, okay. And uh, they were very excited to have us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dropped by a little earlier and scoped out the entrance and then talked to a security guard. And the guy was like, no, this has nothing to do with the life exhibition. You want to go over there. Yeah. And he was like dressed in like a a black coat and everything. And And he's standing in front of a a staircase that goes up in the same building. Yeah. And it's just like one door over. So I was like, oh, sorry. And I know what that is. Well, yeah, now I do too. Well, but tell us, Carrie. I knew already. <laughs> I tell, only tell knew, us of your foreknowledge. I only knew because I did a research article this last year about all the property that Scientology owns in LA. So gotcha. I know they own that whole building. And up at the top, I believe you have two things. I believe you have the Religious Technology Office mm-hmm. and Building Management Services. Okay. Which is real estate. Yeah, it's the arm Empire. that they yep, that they put all of the property under. They put it under building management services, which makes it a little harder to Got link it. it back to the church. Seems of to be where Scientology locks up most of its fortune is in yes. real estate in, ownings. In BMS and so PMs. It's a big building, so it's like a multi story skyscraper kind mm-hmm. of deal. Yeah, it's maybe big. not skyscraper, but it's many stories tall. Well, it depends on how low your sky is, I guess. Sure. Yeah. That's where upper management works. And I think maybe even Miscavige himself I is located so. there. Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, on the lo- anyways, it, it would make sense because his official title is in the religious technology. Oh, that would. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I was like, oh sorry. I thought this guard was saying like, oh, we don't want to be confused with Scientology. And then later right. on i realize he's sitting at a desk with a big scientology cross right behind him <laughs> like oh you're treating me like i've got the totally wrong idea right right give me a break anyways we immediately met mr l ron hubbard in the form of a bronze bust bronze bust over yeah. a fountain which we had seen elsewhere too they had the same bust in the chapel over at the la org it's lrh or bust over there Hey. hey. Yeah, so we met LRH, and then we also met, uh, we'll call her Sunny. Sunny. She was going to be our tour guide. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe she was the one I talked to on the phone. Anyways, she was saying, oh, we were waiting for you because she also had three other people that had just coincidentally come in at the same time to mm-hmm. take the tour. Right. So perfect. We'll go together. And Sunny told us she was from Taiwan. Yeah, seven years ago, I think she found Scientology there, and then she moved here Five years ago. Right. She told us her personal story kind of in dribs and drabs throughout the evening. So there were three other people, all three in like their 50s or so. Yeah. Uh, They were from middle America. 
Yeah. Somewhere. And they'd been taking like... I believe one was from Idaho. Yeah, or Iowa or something like An that. An I-state. Right. You can find those I-states all over. Indiana, maybe. Illinois. Could be that too. <laughs> so they had been taking Hubbard Management Tech classes. Right. So that that's how they were familiar with this. Well, yes, something along those lines. It might have been that Business. the companies they worked for were like implementing right. their WISE programs or whatever. So they had been but, taking some of the coursework and yeah. they, they were here visiting in California like, oh, we want to learn more about Owen Hubbard while we're here. We keep hearing about this guy. So it was a gentleman and two ladies. And the yes. gentleman pretty soon was like, oh, you know, my last name's, was his last name Hubbard? It was Hubbard. Yeah, my last yeah. name's Hubbard. And it, it turns out I'm from the same town that L. Ron Hubbard had visited like during had, his Boy Scout years Had been something. at some point. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we're related. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of cool. burying the lead there, but it was like, wow, you are a Hubbard. Yeah, and he's can't like, blame you for showing up here. Yeah, he said, uh, have to look in to see if I was And we were like, related. hang on, hang on. You know, we could have showed up so you don't have to. <laughs> no, we weren't. We ended up really liking these people too. Yeah, they were cool. We'll talk more about yeah, them. Yeah, it turned out the guy was pretty science inclined, but we'll, mm-hmm. we'll tell you about that. The building itself... Again, really tall, really fancy, all these big columns out Mm -hmm. front. And there's this entryway and you've got the bust and like the flowing water. And there's a wall separating the next part of the exhibition, but it's like very tall ceiling. So you can kind of see over and pass to where the rest of the exhibition is. There's an upstairs area. But yeah, they first lead you through this door to the left. And, and then you kind of continue in a sort of horseshoe manner, although you do go upstairs at one point. Yeah, so you're kind of letting the circuitous route through the museum itself. And so the first stop is this big video screen, and there's already like a bunch of pictures that looks like a museum and mm-hmm. um, various little collected items from L. Ron Hubbard's life. But uh, the first they want you to watch this video. And it was about a 10-minute film. Actually, it's on their website. As soon as it starts, you're like, I know who made this. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, same voice. Same voice, same production values, same really high brights. Oh, yeah, definitely. Gold tones. He was born Lafayette Ronald Hubbard on March 13, 1911 in Tilden, Nebraska. So far, sounds likely. Indeed. Lafayette Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. So that's what the L is for, if you didn't know already. Uh, one of my favorite lines was near the beginning. They said, He spent his formative years in a rough and tumble Helena, Montana where he rode barely broken range bronx at the age of three and a half. Okay, yep. So we reach (laughs) our first improbable. (laughs) We're off to uh, a great start. Hang on, I've got an MU. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Nope, nope, sorry, the video's still going. Now, hang on. I started riding horses when I was five, and that was young. Okay. Yeah, we didn't have anyone who was three and a half. (laughs) L-R-H is a prodigy. Oh, you're right. And he did everything sooner and faster and better than everyone else. And ah, what a ev- phenom. Everyone else around him voluntarily heaped praises and awards and certificates upon him. Oh, I can't as a wait result. to see some of those. He's like a magnet for certificates. So yeah, that was just one of the first of his many accomplishments. And then his mother was, for the time, a rarely thoroughly educated woman. Oh, wow. I said. And so... A T-E-W. As a young child, he was already reading well... Be- <laughs> I, I'm amazed at how quickly you put those acronyms <laughs> together. That's an impressive skill you have. Prodigious, if you will. And so he was already reading well beyond his years, philosophy, science, and the pillars of Western literature, because he had a rare and abiding curiosity. And like, how do we even double check that? It's, a, it's such okay. grandiose language, right. too. Yeah, his father was a naval officer, and so as a result, L. Ron Hubbard crossed the country and got to experience different parts of the U.S. in the 19-teens and 1920s. And now, just to clarify, you're just relating what they're telling us. You haven't fact-checked Oh, this. yeah. This okay. is all the video and how they right. present it. At the age of 12, he entered the Boy Scouts. 
Wait a minute. Okay. And then did he quickly become the youngest ever Eagle Scout? Oh, how'd you know that? I just had a feeling. You got it. You know? And you're in 21 merit badges and only three and a half months. I tried to email the Eagle Scouts and double check this fact. I did oh. not get an email back. I think someone else did. I saw online where ah. someone had tried to follow up with the Boy Scouts of America and they wrote back and said essentially, well, we don't keep records of like who's ah. the youngest, but... That's certainly a young age to be an Eagle Scout, oh, huh. so good job. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, all right. all right. What I imagine there, and of course I couldn't check this either, but what I imagine is that like just someone in the room was like, this is the youngest we've ever seen, you know, and he was like, yaha! Exactly. Official proclamation. So yeah, again, his father was part of the Navy, and I guess he was exposed early on to a naval officer who had studied Sigmund Freud. Sure. And they talk elsewhere about what a apt mind L. Ron Hubbard had and he learned everything he could from this man and realized early on like well this isn't quite right but this is a fascinating question of the mind and so that's what got him started there's so much so much in Scientology talk of how LRH just read everything so just trust me he read everything yeah. and he figured it out I took a, an introductory course in physics so I understand physics yeah right I'm Elron Hubbard. This. So then he traveled the world at 16 years old. He visited Asia. And at the time, it was still rarely seen by Westerners. Mm-hmm. And he, the Orient. He traveled a quarter of a million miles through India and the Philippines and China and studied Vedic hymns. <laughs> and and they say, like, in China, he spoke with all the, the wise religious leaders and he saw amazing magical things that, you know, science could not explain. Okay. Like, again, how am I ever supposed to check this? He tells many stories about the various things that he sees elsewhere uh-huh. and and there was even a fair amount of mention of that at the uh, birthday celebration i went to recently he was i think just taken in by a lot of magic tricks sure sure also where did he get the money for all this traveling uh well he was working on a boat in china <laughs> oh okay all that boat money Got yeah it. and i don't know i guess somehow he was allowed to come along with his father who was in the navy i'm not sure quite how the arrangement Maybe. worked the next thing was like he comes back to the U.S. and he goes to George Washington University, uh, but then he leaves because of the Depression. The Great uh, Depression, not his own. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he ran out of money at some point. But yeah, he's doing all these things like he's the 385th licensed glider pilot. Oh, it's well, 385. Really important to deal. call that out. The newspapers reported him as Flash Hubbard. And I'm just sensing like <laughs> one newspaper like use that somewhere in a small paragraph. I'm sure they said that and it uh, became his new title. Totally. Or they were like, who refers to himself as Flash Hubbard? Also, a lot of this travel stuff I know has been challenged. Yes. One of the one of the like big challenges of undertaking this investigation is that there's not only so much original material, but there's so much criticism of the original material you could never yes. pass through even the criticism. So I'm sure tons of what we're going to say now about LRH's life is super in question. Yes. But even the questions are hard to dig through because there's just so much. Yeah, so pretty much every single point we're mentioning that they're telling us has a really strong response to it in terms of like how his facts checked out. Right. Because I think he just loved to proclaim things about himself and then the church has to defend them. But even just basic things like, did he even go to this country? Those things will be questions, not just like his specific stories in them. I have a very specific example of that, which we'll get to shortly. I love that he organized expeditions and he goes to... Beginning in June of 1932... He organized the first of several expeditions to remote and primitive lands. Initially, a 5,000-mile voyage into the Caribbean, where he mingled with a people predating Columbus by at least 10 centuries. I'm not sure what they meant by that. I guess he visited 
people. Yeah, it was what? like it was like a civilization, I guess, had been untouched oh. since before Columbus's okay. day. Okay, that's kind of what I'm getting from okay. that insinuation. But then they're also saying like how he was one of the first to complete a mineralogical survey of Puerto Rico. It's like, all okay. right, is that something one to brag of, about? All right, one of the first uh-huh. to do a mineralogical survey. Like, okay. I mean, I guess that's cool. All right, sure. Good job. Uh, So he wrote for magazines and science fiction, fantasy, westerns, high adventure, even romance. Guy was very prolific. Mm -hmm. Guy wrote a ton. That I will not deny. He wrote, they said, uh, more than 300 novels and novelettes and used 15 pen names. They would publish a magazine that had... It was pretty much just filled with his stories under different names. Ah, maybe. Very prolific. We were even told uh, later that he types 94 words per minute. Very fast. Yeah, impressive. That's faster than I can type. Me at my fastest, and I can't do that just off the top of my head. I can do that if I'm following along with something else. Right. I don't know how he could sustain that. Actually, I think I would type faster if I were doing it off the top of my head. Than really? Than if I were following something. Yeah, oh, okay. you, you don't think so, huh? No. Well, I just know if I take tests, I can do about that. Uh-huh. Sonny was telling us later that he didn't think as he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> something to brag about and she kind of caught herself said well he thought but he didn't like stop to think he just thought well, as he wrote I know there were like some playwrights say that's how they would write they were just sort of keyed into the muse so to speak you mm. know so these characters have their own personalities I'm not even really thinking about them I'll just write and their words come out uh, alright but clearly he's in the same category as like an Isaac Asimov or uh-huh. a Stephen King of just someone who just can keep yeah. writing keep producing oh, absolutely. material now this is maybe something to brag about when you're writing fiction I do want you to think if you're writing nonfiction. I mm-hmm. want you to pause. Yeah. I want you to edit. I Fact want the check. whole shebang, please. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Whatever the quality of the works, he wrote them. He uh, wrote them. Prolifically. So yeah, he was an author spanning 50 years of writing and uh, no one can take that away from him. So then he crisscrossed the country again. He joined the Explorers Club and he did three expeditions under their flag. He had his first decisive breakthrough in 1937. He discovered the dynamic principle of existence underlying all existence and wrote the manuscript Excalibur. Oh, yeah. Which was the predecessor to Dianetics and would set the stage for all of his later work. And the guy who uh, played LRH on the Dead Authors podcast. Andy Daly. He spoofed this brilliantly, but like... I guess alternately, L. Ron Hubbard would say he never actually wrote it. Mm -hmm. And he would say people who read it would throw themselves out of buildings because it was just too powerful. Oh, okay. So you you can have it one way, but not both. Either you didn't write it Uh or people read it and threw themselves out of buildings. So when he said he didn't write it, was he claiming someone else did? What was he saying? No, just that like he worked on it, but he never actually released it anywhere, never finished it. He was just oh, like notes or something like that. Okay, so I can't go check out Excalibur at the library. Apparently not. No, I don't okay. think it actually exists as a manuscript anywhere. Uh, but it, I see. it was so powerful, you know, it could really hurt people. Have you ever read a book so powerful you want to throw yourself out a window? No. Have you? No, I don't think so. Uh, Wizard of Oz is up there. <laughs> no, I mean, what? Oh, just, yeah, what a climb to make. What but would it be? Yeah, it's just... What would make you climb out a window? I mean, it makes me immediately think of the War of the Worlds lore. Oh, right. But that's like actually thinking it's happening. Yeah, well, clearly it's just bluster him saying that this Was is... Was Excalibur supposed to be nonfiction? 
Yeah. Okay, yeah, I but it's maybe. all these brilliant insights he had right. in 1937. If it existed in any form, I would gladly read it and accept the consequences. And throw yourself out the sure, window. Sure, yeah. Defenestrate let's... yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, if that's a consequence, I'll take it. So wow. by all means, if, if anyone's got a copy of Excalibur, I'm happy to read it. So we're reading a little bit here. Okay, I guess he wrote it in 1938 and possibly under the influence of nitrous oxide after so having teeth extracted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there were other people who attested to the existence of this man. Manuscript. This is reminding me of Joseph Smith and the Golden Tablets now all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I guess there was an excerpt published in 1991. Well, anyways, if anyone has this Excalibur and they want to try it out on somebody, I will willingly read it and see what happens. But all this important work he was doing on Excalibur was interrupted by this little thing we called World War II. Never heard of it. And he had a rare... Master Mariner's License, which means he could pilot any vessel in any ocean. What? You have a problem with that? (laughs) No, I was going to ask if that's it. Is it that he can run any boat? Fully capable. Or boat-like thing. Sure. In any ocean. Yeah. It's like, in the world. this thing floats. I can pilot it. So I'm L. Ron Hubbard. Who on earth would even give this? (laughs) You, I think you asked that at the time, too. And oh, uh-huh. they're like, oh, it was the Navy. Uh-huh. Yep. See, it seems like, now call me crazy, it seems like the Navy would only have control over U.S. waters. Sure, but... You see my problem? But wherever they feel confident to go, he can he can pilot mm, a boat. I see. He can be a captain. They go a little bit into his war history, and I know that is highly contested, mm-hmm. uh, but they say that he was like a captain both in the Pacific and Atlantic and highly decorated, treated for wounds, suffered during combat. Now I picture like highly decorated, he just had like a pink blazer. <laughs> and then his, his like war wounds are like paper cuts. Someday I'm going to be able to uh, say I was highly decorated. <laughs> Sonny elaborated later, I guess he was uh, wounded in an explosion and was like partially blinded. And then mm. he helped heal himself. Oh, right. But yeah, other people tell different stories about how wounded he was. And he also helped some people. Yeah, other people, like when he was in the whatever recovery ward, he was busy trying his new methods on other people. Right, and the auditing process helped unblind them. Right, so this is where he pioneered that work. You know how like when you're blind Mm -hmm. and then you're like, hey, one time when I was a kid, I hurt my foot and then suddenly you can see? Well, yeah, because it was psychosomatic. Yeah. Yep, that's how it works. Yep. So he continued to combine... Especially when you're in a military hospital and clearly something has just happened to you. Anyway, go on. <laughs> it's a very Christian science at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. It's all in your mind. Never mind that that giant tower next to you was destroyed and right. concussive waves of air hit you. Never mind that. So he continued to combine the spiritual and the scientific. And uh, after the military, he started working with writers and actors in Hollywood and... In the video, they said he also worked with street gang members who he treated as a special officer with the LAPD. Oh, boy. Oh, we should ask the LAPD. Well, guess what? I happen to know a former LAPD officer. Oh, Spencer Marks. As do you, yes. And I have seen this special officer badge uh, before at the Author Services building Uh uh, when I attended one of the Golden Age radio drama hours. One that LRH carried around, not Spencer. Yes, right. Okay. Spencer actually then looked into this and went and talked to the curator at the LAPD Historical Society. Okay. When he started talking to him, the curator was already saying like, oh, man, I get so many people from Scientology who come in here 
asking me about this and they've got all these preconceived notions and they try to argue with me oh, about boy. what it means and what L. Ron Hubbard did. Okay. But turns out, I guess the, the modern LAPD badge has remained very consistent it's like since 1940 okay. when it was created. And this badge was issued in January of 1948 okay. and it was very different. It was smaller. It had like a pointed top and bottom and it's gold, whereas the actual LAPD officer badges are mostly silver with like kind of a gold insignia of the city hall. Mm-hmm. This was one that they would hand out to people who had like taken a course to become a security guard, essentially. Oh. And it even says, I have this image of his little special officer card employed Metropolitan Debt, which is short for the Metropolitan Detective Agency. The agency itself was licensed by the LAPD, and he served as an armed security guard. He had no power beyond citizen's arrest. Remind me, what was he saying he used this for? He worked with street gang members who (laughs) he treated as a special officer with the LAPD. Oh, boy. So this is one particular claim that your friend and mine, who you may remember from the Raylian episodes, uh, looked into very closely... And it does not pan out. And they really made him sound like he had a lot more authority or significance than he did. But he was never employed by the LAPD. And working with street gangs could mean like anything in the whole world. Well, if he wasn't doing his job and defending whatever (laughs) property it was, yeah, sure. Maybe he was going down to talk with street gangs. I don't know. Or maybe they would like walk up and be like, hey, man, I want to go in this building. And he's like, no, you're in a street gang. But it was a pleasure working with you. Yeah. Could you sign this? Spencer also told me that there's no such thing as like a special officer. That's never been like a title within the LAPD. He's like, what makes him special? Like he can fly? Oh, didn't it say special? What did it say on that? Yeah, but it wasn't like a position within the LAPD. Oh, right, right. So that particular claim does not check out. Cool. So yeah, then he also worked with disturbed individuals, seriously disturbed at a Georgia facility. Again, what? Like that could mean anything. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that every time someone says worked with, you should be looking at it with this fine tooth to comb. But like this guy just so clearly will make things up. Clearly suspect. Yeah, it seems reasonable to question everything. And then you start to notice this very vague language throughout. Yeah, and and just these really triumphant, uh, overblown, hyperbolic terms used at at every turn. So then he wrote Dianetics, uh, which came out in 1950. The music gets like really like emphatic here at this point. It keeps like going up a notch. And so it was, having developed a workable technology of the mind, he authored a definitive text on the subject, a work detailing all underlying theory, discoveries, and techniques. That book was Dianetics, The Modern Science of Mental Health, published on May 9, 1950. It sparked a storm of popular enthusiasm and immediately hit the New York Times bestseller list for 26 consecutive weeks. And at this point, you and I had done our Dianetics course. Already. So she was so excited about Oh, yeah. That. And she did the whole thing like, oh, so uh, where did you find out about the seminar? Uh-huh. Like, oh, well, I'd taken courses. Which courses had you taken? Right. Tell her which one. Oh, where did you find out about the LA org? Did oh. you know that Scientology is a combination of the word science? Yeah. <laughs> She actually told us the whole dia and noose thing. Oh, right. And then later on, she told us that Scientology means knowing about knowing. Yeah, close enough. Yeah, so she had all of the uh, lines. Yeah, so Dianetics, big hit, 26 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Even today, still a best-selling book on the mind. The video was really pitching Dianetics at this point. But that was only a stepping stone. Soon practitioners discovered past lives. Wait, hang on, hang on. Okay. If engrams can travel from one life to the next... And if most people don't get cleared before their next life, mm-hmm. wouldn't most of your engrams be from your past life instead of from fetal through age two? Yeah, it seems like your basic basic should be from 30,000 years yeah. ago or more. Right? Yep. 
This is the first time I have doubted what they are teaching us. But it's starting to sound wrong. Yeah, Carrie has this mystified look hmm. in her eyes. All hmm. of this all of this is coming into Hang question on. now all of a I'm sudden. I'm going to jump out this window. <laughs> <laughs> so then they uh, finished up, what kind of man could have founded the only major religion of the 20th century? The answer is simple. Only a man who lived life from the top down and the bottom up. A man who had seen <sighs> so much wisdom and great suffering. A man who spent a quarter of a century bridging the gap between East and West, science and religion. A man such as L. Ron Hubbard. Play the triumphant music. And it was was cute, it all finished, and then Sonny said, now you know him. (laughs) (laughs) So now we started one... She's real sweet. Yeah, totally. So we start looking around this room, and they've got all these plaques, and I am a very slow museum goer. Mm -hmm. I want to read everything, Uh but the group kept moving, so I was Uh like, ugh, I'm not done reading all of these things. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, they had this whole section about the Blackfeet Indians. That's another claim that L. Ron Hubbard made that when he was young, he uh, befriended a medicine man of the Blackfeet Indians and they made him a blood brother. Oh, sure. But it turns out they live like 300 miles from where he was and they don't have blood brothers. That's not a, that's <laughs> that's not a, a thing problem. they do. Yeah. <laughs> have they been contacted about that? Do you yeah. Know? Are they still yeah, there? like oh, the okay. actual tribe. And they're and like, they like nope. nope. Oh, wow. Can't be true. Uh, I mean, unless it was just like one guy. See, again, I can picture like him like going up and being like, Johnny, 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 want to be blood brothers? He's like, what? Uh, sure. Yeah, we're blood brothers now. All right. <laughs> I'm a blood brother with the Indian tribe. I wouldn't be surprised because it seems he was really eager to like kind of push people like, here, give yeah. me some commendation, which reminds me of George King. Um, oh, yeah. The Ethereum Society. Yeah. Just L. Ron Hubbard was better at it. Yeah. At getting and commendations. this will also come into play with something I noticed at the Way to Happiness place. Mm, we'll yes. Talk about. Oh, yes. And in this room was one of my favorite things, the National Geographic letter. Yes. So they kept talking about what a great photographer he is. He's just such an amazing photographer. Uh-huh. And they have this display of his photos, which are fine. I mean, oh, they're yeah. not bad. They're sure. not bad, but they're not like, whoa, look at this. They're mostly landscapes. Apparently, the National Geographic Society agrees with you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So there's a letter there among the photos that's from the National Geographic Society. And it's like, dear Mr. Hubbard, we have reviewed your submissions. If you could tell us a little more about what's in these photos, we can give you a better idea of whether we can use them. Sincerely, the National Geographic Society. Wow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Clearly. He wrote back and was like, this one's a horse. And they did not use it or else there would be a National Geographic sitting there oh, with the photos. we would have heard about it because they would be trumpeting it to the skies. Yeah. Essentially, they're just using the name, name dropping National Geographic. Because he got a form letter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're hoping he'll just kind of walk along quickly and be like, whoa, he was like a, a National Geographic photographer. If L. Ron Hubbard were alive today, he would be like, I just got a letter from Bernie Sanders directly to me. At the top, it said, Dear Lafayette. It was like, thank you for donating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need your help. That's right. Bernie Sanders needs my personal help. And so then later he'd be like, and I worked with Bernie Sanders right. to help. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was a major contributor to that campaign. There was this big display saying 21 cultures. So I guess he had interacted with 21 different cultures by the age of 31. And so this is you know how he gained all this knowledge because he just interacted with everyone across the world. And what counts as a culture? I'm yeah. 32. I feel like I could count up 21 so-called cultures I've interacted with. I'd love to. Even s- in the show. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, he's the guy who takes a picture with the black person and says, oh, like, 100%. my best friend. Yeah. It's like when Donald Trump's like, I have so many Chinese friends. And they all say this to me. I have so many friends from Iraq. The Mexicans love me. me. Yeah. yeah, he's that guy. He's, <laughs> he is Donald Trump. 
he visited the Alaskan Panhandle. They showed pictures of his pith helmet. Great. There pictures were, of a pith helmet. There were uh, little like golden statues of Shiva. I don't know if he gathered those. They were just props to let us know that those are cultures that he mm-hmm. also interacted with. Uh, but yeah, Guy was a uh, seasoned traveler. So he says. So then we start to walk into the next section and uh, there's a bunch of Pulp Fiction magazine covers. Yeah, and- they have it set up kind of like a magazine stand. Right. Yeah. Magazines like Amazing Stories and Astounding Science Fiction. This might be a good time to mention, Ross, that I think it was Christmas last year. I gave you a CD of some of his short stories, like a Western, oh, I yeah, think. Oh, yeah. That's that right. From, Three of them. From this era. That's and right. And you listened to it, even though you said they were dreadfully boring. Yeah, I remember the first one was like, all told in this guy's voice. And there were no female characters in the entire story. It was just <laughs> this guy. And it was so rugged. The second story had like a bunch of like token female characters. And the third one had like one decent female character. It was like actually Wonder. a real person. I think you also told me that they were all like specifically described as white. Yeah, they were all like, <laughs> yeah. he had black hair against his milky white skin. It was a great gift. Thank you. You're welcome. I got it at the Goodwill. It was hour of entertainment. <laughs> Good. At the um, end of this one hallway, there was this giant marquee. And it said, L. Ron Hubbard's The Secret of Treasure Island. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Marquee-like as if it were a movie theater. Yeah, because that was the first screenplay I think he wrote for Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So they're really proud of this. And if he had written like a movie anyone remembered, of course, we'd be hearing all about that. Sonny said that he wrote some other movies too. Uh, So then we get into a really fun portion dedicated to... Battlefield Earth. Oh, boy. The late, great Battlefield Earth. So, yeah, it's a very popular science fiction book that he wrote, and it was made into a movie. And It's widely hated. Sonny's like, read the book, don't see the movie. The movie has famous Scientologist Mr. John Travolta in yes, it. Yes, the film was just an utter bomb. Oh, man. Like, unwatchable yeah. bomb. Like, on everybody's list of the worst films ever. Uh-huh. We saw one of my favorite pieces here, these sculptures of a giant alien and, like, a caveman sitting across from each other. Now, here's what's really weird about that the first time that I went I walked through that room and my guide was like and this is nothing this is nothing and kept leading us through and I was like this looks like the most interesting part there's aliens and she's like this is nothing this is nothing and like hurried us through it I have no idea why that's a terrible guide no it really seemed like she was covering something up but like we were walking through this obviously very exciting part of it it seems like the most interesting part so when we came back I was like oh are they gonna scurry us through this room again but they were mm-hmm. like oh you know this is battlefield earth so <laughs> Sonny, at this point Sonny asked us like you you like to read uh-huh and we're like we're yeah like, yeah, a lot. yeah and she said uh well i don't i, <laughs> I hate to read but he Very was a good. great science fiction author etc and she was real impressed that we liked to read yeah like oh you do <laughs> fiction or non-fiction we're like yes both all of the above yeah i love that battlefield earth also came with an original soundtrack Composed by Mr. L. Ron Hubbard. Ooh, I bet it's gorgeous. Space jazz. We didn't get to hear it, did we? No. We gotta find it. They should have had it playing there. They should. I bet we can find it. Let's find space jazz. I Uh, think it sounded like this. And I asked, was it used in the film? said, no. (laughs) So L. Ron Hubbard's one contribution... Other than writing the book, of course. So Battlefield Earth is 
supposed to be sort of a space drama about what will eventually happen to Earth, right? No? May have yeah, already it's happened? Set, it's set in the year 3000, Okay, I think. I actually haven't read it. I want to. I haven't read it either. My she, understanding, though, is that they talk about it like it's fiction, but there's sort of a wink-wink, this might be how it this will really might, turn right, out. Right, that these aliens from TG... Or no, TGAC is the name for Earth. Okay. My knowledge is very spotty, but I do know that Mitt Romney is a big fan. That's his favorite book. Oh, wonderful. That's funny because I was just thinking about God's Planet. Kolob. Kolob. Hi, the two. <laughs> Indeed. She told us that L. Ron Hubbard once wrote 10 books in one year, mm-hmm. which is impressive, but doesn't surprise me at this point. No. That's like one a month. But what was he doing for two months? Come on, <laughs> L. Ron. What a lazy asshole. We were also introduced to the Writers of the Future contest. He started like a science fiction awards thing that still goes on to this day. But I think some other organization runs it at this point at the end of his life he made sure that new authors would continue to be rewarded mm-hmm. and found that's cool. cool and then we went into the room with all the paintings of L. Ron Hubbard yay yeah oh boy I guess just somebody who was a real big fan of L. Ron Hubbard did a bunch of little paintings of him and they framed right. them all paintings of things that kind of happened and paintings of things that symbolically happened yes. so it'll be like him and Freud well they didn't actually meet but he studied Freud okay oh yeah there was this a picture of a bunch of psychiatrists rejecting his ideas and like mm-hmm. laughing at him or something uh-huh. like that. Which, I mean, that part's kind of true, right? Like the American Psychological sure. Association said. But the way Sunny tells it, she says, well, some people don't like the things that they don't know. And the medical oh. establishment was just, they were jealous of him. That's why they uh, rejected Dianetics. So he went to the public with it. Great know? way to go. There's also a painting of Einstein. It, we asked her like, oh, is that Einstein? She said, oh, someone who looks like him. Oh, okay. T- just another crazy professor, I think I she said. See. <laughs> and at this point, we lose Drew. We don't know where he is. Yeah, we're ready to move on. And so you're like, wait, where's Drew? And so we're like, and then I start getting a little more worried. Drew? Drew? And so Sunny gets in on this and she's yelling out, Drew! Drew, where are you? (laughs) And so finally Drew comes back over and says, oh, looks like you had an an adventure. Yeah, where were you? Hey, yeah, uh, I just kind of wanted to check out the place for my own, like away from uh, our guide. The tour guide. Because there was one room that we just kind of glossed right over and didn't do things inside. It it appeared to be a video room that was right next to like their stuff about toxins, perhaps maybe a part of the the repurification process. Wasn't that, that was later right it, it was yeah, the, but, the uh, green room right you were getting ahead of all of us because we did go there eventually we, we all did i'm not as good as you guys are with staying uh, chill <laughs> and like asking like probing questions i kind of want to like extract myself man and that was like a couple rooms into a 10 room tour well that's where he was essentially he had an adventure yeah, I had an adventure. So he came back and uh, we all went into a little screening room yeah. where they were going to show us a film about Dianetics. Great. And we were like, oh, thank goodness. At this point, we've already spent 22 hours learning everything we ever want to know in our lives about Dianetics. And been forced to watch movies twice already. <laughs> but we sit down and, oh, look what it is. It was a five-minute intro film about Dianetics. It's the same one, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yep. we'd already seen it. And, Do you know something? Someone who's never gotten over a loss in life. Yeah, yeah, all the same bad acting, narration, and all that. So afterwards, then Sunny says that uh, she re- repeats the whole seventy percent of illness is psychosomatic thing, and then she says that this book changed my life. I was in Taiwan seven years ago, and I went to a center and I took Dianetics. I read the book five times, and I'm not a reader at all. So that's impressive. She read it five times. Yeah, that's more than Junus. 
That's more than little old Junus. So, I wonder if she read it in English or in Chinese. I, I would imagine Chinese mm-hmm. because she came here and, and learned English. Right. And within like a year and three months, I think she said she was working at the L. Ron Hubbard Life Exhibit. Really impressive. So yeah, super good job. At this point, we start asking her questions that I think are a little above her pay grade. Yeah. The guy who was with the other group, he kind of started it because he was asking like, well, how do you think Hubbard actually discovered all of this uh-huh. in printing on the cell? How did he come up with that? She's like, oh, well, he, he studied a lot and he did a lot of research. And okay. I and I said, and, like, well, by himself? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Well, like, you know, he worked with other people, but then he did the research by himself. She says these things so confidently, right? Mm-hmm. But then other questions that she doesn't know the answer to, she asks kind of like, well, silly that you'd ask me this. So uh-huh. those she's answering so confidently. And then I said, so if it's on the cell, can you see it like in a microscope? Can you see the engram? And she's like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I haven't done it myself. Okay, okay. Well, you know, you seem to know a lot about it. Okay, sorry. Sunny said, well, I don't know. Because I wasn't there. I wasn't there. That is like the creationist answer. Quite the way to shut down your probing questions. Yeah. But yeah, when she told me that like he did all of this by himself, I was like, ah. Hmm. I wanted her to know that like that's not how science is done. That's not good. That's a bad sign. You don't just do it with a council of one. A council of Elrond, if you will. (laughs) Right. The dude from the other group. Yeah. It turns out is a molecular biologist. An immunologist. Yeah, this guy... Happens to know his shit right. about cells. And is being so nice about the oh, situation. totally. So He understands she's not speaking in her native language. Uh-huh. And, and I think he understands that this is just a, a very unlikely thing we're being told. Yes, but he's very gently asking yeah. questions that would kind of reveal that. Right. I felt he was a kindred spirit. Yes, me too. Uh, and so he was, yeah, wanting to get a little more information about how memories are stored in fetal cells. Uh-huh. Is that in the chromosome or what? The other guy also asked if... This was all informed by or like a predecessor to epigenetics. And again, Mm -hmm. he was kind of graciously saying like sort of related like cells when distressed can like activate certain parts of a genome. Maybe this is kind of related to that. Sonny just responded by saying, oh, are you a scientist? And he said, oh, actually, yes. And then he kind of revealed his credentials Uh there. And so she's like, oh, well, that's great. Let's move on. (laughs) He also said, if they're encoding memories, did they say that like the cells were acting as neurons? Mm -hmm. Did they talk about neurons at all? And I said, only Elrons. (laughs) My productive uh, contribution to the conversation. I'm glad you always remember your jokes. (laughs) Thank you. Months later. Very proud of my bad puns. (laughs) I remember (laughs) the wordplay I used at that moment. (laughs) That is what sticks. We felt a little bad that we were like, maybe badgering the witness a little bit. Yeah, so we we let her go. We, we, we stopped, yeah. Hook. I did ask, though, like, if we still have his research anywhere. Right, yeah. She said, oh, yeah, we have lots of lectures that he recorded, like 3,000 mm. lectures. Okay, not the same. Mm, nope. Mm-mm. No, Talk. like a data chart. Talking or... to the public is not the same as actually showing your work. Right. Which uh, yeah. seems no one's replicating anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, well, if it was this robust science of the mind and he had all these discoveries, if this were anything to do with science... Tons of other people would be replicating it. Oh, yeah. Trying it out, but no. If memories physically encoded themselves on cells, that would change science forever. Oh, yeah. Forever. That he would be not just the leader of a religion. It would be the way like physics changes with like different linchpin oh, physicists. Yeah. He, everything would have changed to like Hubbardian genetics. Oh, yeah. It would be like, yeah, the next Darwinian natural selection or exactly. Einsteinian relativity. Mm-hmm. But no. 
it didn't have that impact because hasn't checked out and he didn't show his work. Right. Yeah. So then and we, no one since has checked his work and proven it. But Sonny at the end of it said, well, I know it works because I know I'm different. Okay. Which is kind of logic we've seen elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, it worked for me. So I know it's true. So stop. Which is a kind of evidence. I don't mean to say that it's not, but like that's the kind of evidence that sort of shuts the conversation down. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, if that's enough for you, what can I say? That's fine. It's your right to believe that. But you're right. Yeah. You've been disinvited from conversation about it. Right. But Ross, Ross, Ross. Yes. Before you go on, I have been thinking lately about all the great shows on Maximum Fun and some I haven't even listened to yet. I'm so embarrassed. There's like 21 shows on Maximum Fun. Exactly. And some are pretty new. Like this one. Hello, Brent. Travis. Welcome to Trends Like These. What's Trends Like These, you ask? Well, it's a podcast where we take the the news trending on the internet and we cover it in podcast form. We go beyond the headlines, beyond the memes to bring you the real story so that when your friends bring it up, you can look real smart. We take things that need to be debunked and we debunk them. And then we take things that need to be rebunked and we rebunk them. We bring you all the details and we give you a spin on it. Our opinions, our thoughts, and we also try to dig up some positive things to talk about. So it's not all bummers. Just a couple of real life friends talking internet trends. So join us every Thursday on MaximumFun.org and wherever podcasts are found. So we go upstairs now. We're taken to a room with a bunch of... so hot. Remember how hot that room was? Oh, it was so hot. I don't. Contact the somatic. I'm so hot. It actually is making me a little warm thinking about it. It was so... Drew, remember how hot it was up there? It was really hot. We get up there and someone's like, I need to use the restroom. And Sonny's like, oh, you're going <laughs> to love this restroom. So this woman goes off to the restroom and then Drew's like, I want to see the restroom. Yeah, it's uh, a really fancy restroom. I don't want to oversell it. It's just not what you'd expect. Like, I mean, I guess it is what you would expect. It befits LRH. Uh, it's very well maintained and, mm-hmm. you know, marbled and like. I had to go in there later because you also sang its praises. I mean, mildly. Yeah. You managed expectations, but still, I wanted to see this. Mm-hmm. The building, I think, originally was a bank from 1924, if I remember their introduction. That sounds right. Yeah, real fancy uh, fancy building. And, yeah, uh, everyone loves that bathroom. Yeah, pretty, pretty nice bathroom. Yeah, people just kept saying how great the bathroom was. So that particular room had a bunch of quotes on the wall and various books and courses. Yes. And this is where Sonny just launched into a long pitch for all of the different types of classes you can take in Scientology. All the lectures. Yes. Congresses. I, right. I like later on Drew asked about that. Like, uh, did he address Congress? Right. Because there was one in particular that said clearing yeah. Congress. Yeah. And then has a picture of him in front of like a bunch of flags. It's a little misleading. Yeah. It makes it look like he was addressing Congress or something. Yeah. And then it turns out they're just using the word Congress as in like gathering. Anytime he'd call everybody together like, I've yeah. got a new idea. Right. I'm going to present right. it at this Congress. Little misleading. But little misleading. Okay. Indeed. She also told us to look up and read the quote on the ceiling. It was Elron Hubbard saying, wisdom is meant for anyone who wishes to reach for it. Sure. Great. Yeah. I agree. If you want to know a thing, I you guess. should be able to know a thing. Yep. Checks out. Not the greatest thing ever said, but accurate. She did tell us how you can buy all of these if there if there are any lectures that you want to listen to or read. 
Yeah, and it, it was sale. weird. We just kind of like already by the Dianetics Theater, we'd left any pretense of this being an exhibition of L. Ron Hubbard's life and a sales pitch for sure. Scientology, Scientology coursework at this point. Yeah. And she asked us if we knew anything about Scientology already outside of what we've heard from the media. And we said, absolutely. Yeah. Boy, oh boy, have we? Do we? Do we? Do we? Do we? We've heard a lot. She was talking about the way to happiness, a drug program, Narconon, so, get our excitement up to, to go take courses. Narconon is their drug rehab program i cannot speak for the claims that come out of that place but if you look up narconon online and look up some of the stories of people dying in that facility people coming out feeling much worse they're really sad upsetting stories and there are several parents of people who died in the facility at arrowhead who have banded together to protest what's going on inside again i'm not claiming to know what happened inside but Mm -hmm. those stories are pretty distressing and worth looking up she asked us all about like our day jobs and again just wanted more details always details they want about your lives yep uh then we went into the the next room which i was really excited about because it was filled with e-meters e-meters thank god thank the good lord this is what you get into scientology for you're like this is the gold that i have been waiting for at the end of the goddamn rainbow some effing e-meters. But hold on, Carrie. We don't get to look at the 20 e-meters just yet because there's another film screen. We're going to watch yeah, a little movie. Yeah, we got to watch this movie. And then she's like, which one do you want to watch? <laughs> but they all have these vague titles. So we're like, oh, well, first, she, just, Yeah, first she said, like, do you want to learn about Scientology or Tools for Life? <laughs> and and you were like, uh, we know quite a bit about Scientology. So how about Tools for Life? And uh-huh. the other people agreed too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there's all these different topics. Whatever. Whatever, whatever you want to show something. us. It's real hot up here. And so finally, the lady from the other group said, well, how about something about finance? Finances. And Sunny said, oh, actually, we don't have anything on finances. Okay. I mean, we do have a course that you can take, and I'll tell you about that later. But uh, how about we play this one on the tone scale? We're like, great, Fine. sure. Let's learn about the tone and scale again. And it's so warm. And also, there are a couple people in our group who are bigger people. And so they're like really warm up there, like really <laughs> Oh, that's true. They kept kind of complaining about that, saying, are we yeah, almost saying, like, is Yeah, are we going to be able to go back to And she's like, oh, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Just like sort of seems not clued in that everyone's very uncomfortable and a couple mm. people are like turning red uncomfortable so that's nice so yeah the video there's was the tone scale but there's no color scale in scientology uh, this video had particularly bad acting and uh, one thing i remember is that they say that the most dangerous tone level is covert hostility yes again that's 1.1 and the example now i might be wrong about this it might have just been the ones i've seen but all the examples i saw were always women hmm. and they're always women being like Oh, honey, uh, do you really (laughs) think you should wear that dress? Oh, do you really think he likes you? Oh, okay. Well, me too then. (laughs) Yeah, right. Hey, no one talks like this. They smile to your face and they stab you in the back. Mm-hmm. And I just assume now that, you know, all the Scientologists are saying that you and I yeah, are yeah. covertly hostile. Yeah, could very well be. At least we're not apathetic. Yeah, hey. At least we care. And we're not bored. We can aspire to boredom. Yeah. <laughs> I was bored when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to rise. Yeah. And then so come you, right back down. Yeah. I don't think I'm being covertly hostile, but they may think so. Yeah, oh, yeah. I just assume that would be their uh, sure. text. I case. consider myself covertly hostile. Because you're Carrie? Yeah. I don't know. So then then we finally get to look at the e-meters and fondle them. I think Drew is one of the first to like go. I think he was the very first. Just like Elron Hubbard was one of the first to conduct a mineralogical... <laughs> 
survey <laughs> of Spears, Puerto Rico. Drew Spears was the first to use an e-meter in a small group of people on this particular day. They took turns. I'd already had uh, personal experience with an e-meter recently, which we'll tell you about. So I was good on that. But I was busy checking out all these other e-meters. Uh-huh. And they had labels on them. And they showed kind of like what year they were from. There were a lot by this guy named Matheson. Mm-hmm. So there's like the Matheson Model B, Matheson Model L. Then there's the British Mark IV and the British Mark V. And these are all really interesting because you can see A time. progression, yeah. You can see progression. Yeah, just technologically you can see progression. And but design also design-wise, you could just see like the 50s turn into the 60s, turn into the 70s, turn yes. into the 80s. And right around like mm, the 90s, it kind of sticks with a particular look. Well, a lot of them were encased in wood, mm-hmm. you know, the earlier Almost ones. Almost look like an old radio. Exactly. Yeah. And then they get plastic at a certain point and then they start to get like more curvy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, now the modern one, the Mark 8 is just like super shiny and mm-hmm. it's got like uh, almost like an automobile finish on it. Mm-hmm. So that was the one that everyone was trying. It was on its own little pedestal by itself because it's the best and most current e-meter. Right. And there were some other interesting ones that kind of stood out. There was like an audio e-meter. Uh-huh, yeah. That was an early experiment where it kind of went based on the sound of your voice. Which might be similar to our lie detection episode where they used our voices to try to detect deception. Right. Voice polygraph. Yeah. The voice polygraph. That's right. Oh, there was one called, okay, this is my second favorite moment of this investigation. <laughs> I know what it is. There was one called the quantum e-meter. Mm-hmm. I turned around and I said to Sunny, like, oh, so the quantum e-meter, does that have any special properties like that take advantage of quantum mechanics or something? Uh-huh. And uh, she said, oh, quantum is his son's name. And we were quantum. like, whoa, quantum he, Hubbard. He, what he a great named his son quantum name. that's awesome so later on when it came up we saw that he had a son named quentin, quentin. <laughs> <laughs> i just Cute. love that the Cute. quantum e-meter yeah. named after his son if i saw a name in chinese that were just a couple oh yeah off, i'm sure i'd make the same error but yeah no cute. no fault to sunny at all i just thought that was adorable and then i mentioned that the e-meter is based off of the wheatstone bridge and our scientist friend was very interested in this. So he kept asking me, what's that called again? I'm going to look that up. Mm. But essentially what, what the e-meter does is when you hold on to these cans, you are then, <laughs> you're completing a circuit. I'm, I'm no engineer, but inside you have essentially one. Inside the meter, not inside yourself. Right. You have a circuit that's used to detect like an unknown resistance uh-huh. by comparing it with three other known resistances. Makes sense. And it's kind of organized in a diamond. And if you get to the point where your unknown resistance matches the known resistance on like the other side of this diamond, then the electrons can flow across this middle bridge in the center and then that will move the needle. Okay. And so then it will kind of move based on how much you're completing the circuit. Okay. And then there's these other dials that can kind of step up or down the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. That other dial seems <laughs> yeah. like quite a lightning rod there. That is the um, arbitrary input into the system that right. can make this do whatever you want it to. Right. So this is the problem I have with it is as you're standing there trying it out, your auditor, or in this case, your tour guide, can just turn it up and down however he or she wants. Until they get, yeah, a spiking needle on the right or yeah. on the left or right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did hold it myself and do what she said. You know, she said, think of like a sad thing, not oh, think that's of a right. positive thing. And then I just switched them. 
I thought of a positive thing when she said, think of a negative thing and think ah. of a negative uh, Same thing happened. Okay. And I don't know if she was controlling that or if it's just the machine. But thing. you're saying something where the expectations can drive the results rather than uh, yeah, it seems an like actual it. measure of what you're thinking of. Right. But yeah, it's supposed to be measuring your thoughts, what yeah. your thetan is doing. Good test. Thanks. But it seems like that's such a basic test. You'd think this would come up more? Guess not. They don't seem to have any desire to disconfirm right. the, the finding there. Which Karl Popper would say makes it not science. Falsifiability is key. Mm-hmm. So then we walked back downstairs and continued on to where Drew had been wandering before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a sign telling us that we live in a chemical society in neon. And there were a bunch of little uh, mannequin figures and then we went into another little room where like they could play videos and it was all lit green. And then she said that's where they take like kids groups or something. But we quickly all moved right. on from there. And then we were in a hallway that had the way to happiness. Yes. And we were like, oh, we know about this a mm-hmm. little. All these precepts of the way to happiness. So the way to happiness is another little booklet that LRH wrote that's kind of their Ten Commandments kind of thing. Right. It's 21 precepts. Mm-hmm. Most of them are like pretty straightforward. They're like, do unto others what you would have done to you, <laughs> except put in a it's funny because you you pointed way. out to me like 19 and 20 are awfully similar. And I read them and they were both restatements of do unto others as yeah. you would have them do unto you. Right. The, the first rule. one's like, do what you'd have others do to you. And then the other's like, don't do what you <laughs> wouldn't have others do to you. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Something like that. There's one that's like, have fidelity to your sexual partner. You know, there's just sort of yeah. straightforward. And yeah. I, I don't think any of them I would particularly argue with. Like, right. okay, that's, Yeah. Yeah. As general rules anyway. Don't steal there's definitely like a pretty strong anti-drug anti-alcohol component so we're walking through that and it's kind of like a curved path like they want you to actually think of a path to happiness and then it points towards this wall that carries on the road to happiness in a trompe l'oeil or trompe l'oeil i don't know i mentioned it at the time and then we got into a debate about how to pronounce it i've never heard that phrase oh that's like when uh wily e. coyote would paint um oh, on the wall like look this road continues but it's actually a big brick wall i see okay and oh yeah so was there the uh hills and sun yeah on the other exactly ends? so they love that hill and sun so if you just kept walking into the painting uh-huh like you would in mary poppins you uh-huh. would continue down this road got it but uh, yeah we talked about the the proper pronunciation of Trump loyal. If Donald Trump builds his wall, he can paint Trump loyals on the other side. Yeah. And the Mexicans can walk into them. Great. (laughs) You'd like that, I'm sure. Nobody listening to this vote for Trump. (laughs) I beg of you. All right. We're getting close to our favorite moment. Mm -hmm. But all this time, I think the other party has been kind of interested like, wait, this is an L. Ron Hubbard life exhibition. I'd like to know about his personal life. Mm-hmm. Does he have any like children? Yeah. Say or like a wife? You yeah. haven't mentioned anything about his personal yeah. life. And so Sonny kind of says, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he was married and he had six kids. Oh, six children. Yeah, and that's all she wants to talk about. But then our our friends are looking up on their phones and they're saying, oh, well, he had, oh, three wives. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And, uh, oh, the, the different wives had different children. 
Okay. And one of them, I mean, we know just from past experience and from, you know, now we've been in this for like a month or two. We've done oh, yeah. outside research. There's a son, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., who's mm-hmm. come out like pretty strongly against his dad. Yeah. Now, I, I think, think he's passed away now, but. I think he also later recanted it uh, oh. under somewhat suspicious circumstances. Perhaps but Okay. Perhaps. But did like have pretty awful memories of huh. his father, including watching his father perform an abortion on his mother. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, and he was a product of the first marriage to Margaret Grubb, mm. who L. Ron Hubbard was married yum, to yum, yum. from 1933 to 1947. Okay. Uh, his second wife was Sarah Northrup. Yes. Uh, who he married in 1946. And I know what you're thinking. Wait a second. I thought his last marriage ended in 1947. Well, that's true. It was bigamy marriage. Yes, he married Sarah Northrup while he was still married to Margaret Grubb. Well, hang on. One of the keys to happiness (laughs) is uh, having sexual fidelity to your partner. So, yeah, that's great. And then the second wife. Where does this guy find the time? Seriously, again, prolific. Yeah. You can't call him lazy. We all wonder how you do it, Ross. But at least you don't have a second wife out there. I don't have the second family going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's just a bit too much. Mm -hmm. He had met Sarah Northrup in his involvement with the OTO, which you may Uh, remember. Ah, the Ordo Templi Orientis. Hi, guys. If you've listened to our episodes on that particular Black Magic group, Uh uh, maybe not founded by Aleister Crowley, but heavily influenced by his writings. Um, And uh, so, yeah, he was friends with Jack Parsons, who was like an early rocket scientist who also not only dabbled in the occult, but was very prolific in the occult. Uh, I think Jack Parsons eventually, though, was like, this guy's annoying. Oh, yeah, definitely. They had a falling out. Well, it was because, I think largely, L. Ron Hubbard was trying to get in on all this sex magic and Uh was starting to influence this group. (laughs) And Sarah was, I think she was the sister of Jack's wife if I'm remembering this. Sounds right. And and she was already like kind of cheating with him. They had like a four-year relationship. And then L. Ron Hubbard came in and kind of stole her away. Boy, oh boy. And then they left and absconded with money. I'm, I'm saying wow. all this from having read this a while ago. So definitely go read about it because it's fascinating. Sure, there's a book called Sex and Rockets that's all about this. Hey. The Occult World of Jack Parsons. Ooh, Carrie has it. By John Carter with an introduction by Robert Anton Wilson. It's a wild story. Yeah. Definitely worth reading up on. I just opened to a page that happens to mention Hubbard. It starts, in September 1945, Hubbard was declared unfit for service due to an ulcer and left the parsonage to go to the hospital for a while to strengthen his disability claim. Anyway. Mm. They didn't mention any of that in the exhibit, nor that he apparently beat Sarah Northrop and at some point abducted both the mother and the daughter that they had together. And he also reported on her numerous times to the FBI saying that she was a communist and they never followed up on it because they thought he was crazy. Wow. Read up on this. This is all amazing. So strangely, none of this was brought up during the meeting. And as we were starting to look up the children, or at least our our friends from the other group were starting to like read out results from the internet. Uh All of a sudden, uh, Sunny was like, oh, distraction. Uh (laughs) Look over here. (laughs) And so what had we come up to, Carrie? Oh, my God. A beautiful curtain. First of all, favorite moment. No question. Oh, yeah. So good. Okay, so it's this curtain that's this big velvet brocade curtain. It's gold. It's got little flecks of reflective material. And it's tall, too. It's like a good 15 feet tall. Yeah, real big. And I jokingly am like, oh, da-da-da-da-da-da-da! And she pushes a button. And what happens, Ross? (gasps) 
Oh, a fanfare breaks out. And I had just been doing that like super jokingly. So now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> and so they're playing this triumphant music and it's like medieval heralds essentially like the king is coming. Can you believe what you're about to say? <laughs> and the curtain parts. They part. And it's a wall <laughs> filled with plaques uh-huh. and awards and announcements by mayors across the globe. And then again, because I can't help but shoot myself in the foot, I'm like, wouldn't it be funny if it opens and there's more? Guess what happens? <laughs> so it splits in the middle and there's another <laughs> there's wall. More! And then I'm like, okay, no more Filled with awards. Well, then Drew and I, like, we're both joking, like, well, two walls of awards are impressive, but... <laughs> there can't be three. <laughs> so then the third one opens up and we're like... Wow, okay. But, I mean, if there were another, I'd be really impressed. And then it opens up, and there's the fourth one. And I think it was five total that opened up. And then the last one is his enormous portrait. Okay, the last one opens up to the dreamy L. Ron Hubbard in glorious black and white. And I'm trying to, I'm like walking up really close, like trying to read the letters so I can see like how impressive are these things. Uh-huh. And some are just like from families. They'd yeah, be you, like you from, were coming back to me like, that one is just from like this couple. And they're like, oh, thanks for supporting our music business. but he obviously kept them and was considered every single one a major a major award it's just this like uh, intense desire to collect every accolade possible and sunny told us like this is only five percent there's more than five thousand accolades that l ron hubbard has received and they're still coming in all the time wow 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 wow, because you know the church of scientology goes around and pesters everybody like Please, can you write out like an official acknowledgement that you Uh really appreciate our contribution? And we really know that's true, again, (laughs) because of the way to happiness, but you'll hear more later. It was the cherry on top. It was... It was so good. The piece de resistance. Now, you might wonder, oh, well, I get to see pictures of this. Unfortunately, there was a very strict no photos policy. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Ross tried. Yeah, she didn't want us taking photos. She asked me not to. Yeah, so you didn't. Sorry. But who boy, this is worth going to. Uh, Yeah, it is. And it was free. It took us an hour, 40 minutes, somewhere around there. To uh, get through. But I would say it's worth it for that last triumphant wall at the very end. And that's not quite the end. Well, that's real interesting. But I wanted to tell you about something else, Carrie. What? Squarespace. <gasps> Squarespace. That's oh. like when you're in a tiny space. But each side is equi-sized from the other. Equidistant? Well, equidistant, yeah. But each is also the same length as the other. Oh, yeah, it's a square. Yes, exactly, a square. Did you know that Ono, Ross, and Carrie is supported in part by Squarespace? Whoa, hang on, what? Not just a mathematical concept, but also the simplest way to capture your passion with a beautiful website. Like our passion, Ono, Ross, and Carrie, which is hosted by Squarespace? Uh, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. right. For our listeners, if there's an idea or project that you're itching to show the world, uh, you should. With Squarespace's simple tools and captivating templates, showcasing your hard work is the easy part. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's the hard part? Uh, Creating the work itself. Uh, Squarespace isn't going to do that for you. They're going to give you an awesome platform. Uh, So you can start your free trial today. And that's right. It's free. So you go in and you just get started. uh, You build it. and They uh, will come. (laughs) And you, you make sure you like it first. And then you pay for it. Once you know you like it, cool. go to squarespace.com slash ono, O-H-N-O. That's for our listeners in particular. Do that, and that's how you get started. You should. Squarespace. Squarespace. 
After that, you go through their bookstore. Oh, of course. You exit through the gift shop. Yeah. Well, you're essentially right back at the entrance. But yeah, yeah, there's this area where they've got a lot of books to sell you. And then they wanted to take down your information, like your phone number and email, so they could send you an invitation to the Golden Age Theater Radio right. Hour Yes, drama. to see, yeah, to see some of his fiction played out. His acknowledged fiction. Right. So there's all these books and pamphlets there written by L. Ron Hubbard that are on sale. And so I spent $5 on this handbook here, Ross. It's called The Cause of Suppression. Mm-hmm. And it's lovely. Man standing on a desert. There is a large a shadow coming across. Oh, of, of another, another man, man who is not there. Uh, interesting you call this lovely. I'd say it's foreboding. Oh, you're right. It's not lovely at oh, all. Okay. I picked this particular one because I noticed that word suppression mm-hmm. and it reminded me of suppressive persons yeah so that's the church of scientology's term for someone who is just real bad ross yeah they are out to make the world a worse place exactly and fight against scientology and which is synonymous right and so i wanted to look for how they defined sps and also what they said to do about them because one of the things that Scientology is criticized for a lot is telling people to disconnect from their family members or loved ones. Yes, so and then I, they've tried to publicly deny that that even happens. Right. So I went to my text here to look that up. First, you learn that 20% of humanity are violently opposed to the betterment of of any activity or group. So a fifth of people are already antisocial weirdos. And 70% of their life is working against good things. Right. So that's already a fifth of people. For some reason, they think this isn't a lot. They say, as they only comprise 20% of the population, (laughs) and as only 2.5% are truly dangerous, Ah. we see that with a very small amount of effort, we could considerably better the state of society. Uh, it's a fifth of people. That's enormous. If a yeah. fifth of people were murderers, it would be a real problem. Well, hey, well, let's focus on the other 80%. No, we will not. This book will definitely be about mostly those 20%. Oh, okay. So here's how you can spot an antisocial person. Okay. He or she speaks only in very broad generalities. <laughs> Hang on. That reminds me of someone. Hmm. That person deals mainly in bad news. They like to alter or worsen communication as they relay news. So they like kind of pass on the bad news version of whatever. The Debbie Downers of the world. Exactly. And this is weird. They're constantly surrounded with incomplete projects. I don't think of that as an antisocial attribute, but not finishing what you started. Ah, Correlation. Mm -hmm. So then they get on to what a suppressive person is. Suppressive person, abbreviated SP, is a person who seeks to suppress or squash any betterment activity or group, like the Church of Scientology. Uh A suppressive person suppresses other people in his vicinity. This is the person whose behavior is calculated to be disastrous. Suppressive person or suppressive is another name for the antisocial personality. Ah. Then they explain what a potential trouble source is. Uh-huh. Have you heard of that? Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's abbreviated PTS, a person who is in some way connected to and being adversely affected by a suppressive person. Right. He is called a potential trouble source because he can be a lot of trouble to himself and to others. So even if you know an SP, right. you're a potential trouble source to me. Mm-hmm. And so this becomes a real problem if anyone in your vicinity knows someone who's negative, right? Yeah. So there are three types of PTSs. 
PTS type one is someone who directly knows an SP. So that's pretty straightforward. In the leaked Tom Cruise video, like I know he, what you're going to say. Someone had asked him, Have you ever met an SP before? And he just starts laughing. He bursts out laughing, like, Oh, can you imagine a world where, like, that would even be like a thing where you just never even met one of these people? But that just makes him a PTS. He's a potential trouble because source because he knows all these interacted SPs. with an SP. This is a picture of a PTS and an SP together. She's oh. got a bag that just says, LA, LA Night, Night School. School. <laughs> So she's trying to better herself. And what's he saying? Quit wasting your time trying to improve yourself. People can't get any better than they are. Who talks like this? Can you imagine? (laughs) Only the SPs in the Scientologist's minds. Right? Maybe more reasonable would be like, why are you always out so late? Make my dinner. No. (laughs) People can't get any better than they are. (laughs) The dialogue is always bad. Yeah, I mean, it would be more natural if he said something like, you're a daydreamer. Oh, right, exactly. That's something you hear all the time. (laughs) Uh, PTS type 2 is someone who's triggered by something that reminds them of an SP. So holy moly, this is getting to be almost everyone, right? Mm -hmm. So if an SP did something bad to you, let's say your dad always told you you could never grow up to be anything, Mm -hmm. and your dad always wore a top knot. Well, now every time you (laughs) see guys with top knots, you're triggered to remember Oh, him. Yeah. That's an engram. And so you start to act like a potential trouble source. Now, you might think that's a ridiculous example, but no, here's a picture of a woman who is avoiding people with buns. Oh, no. She's such a potential trouble source. She doesn't like buns. She's avoiding the woman in the bun. Right. She's looking right. down and away. And because she, it reminds her. And so she's being a PTS. PTS 2, yeah. Oh. Okay, now the PTS 3, Ross, is often the last person to. Oh, is suspect. that made by Sony? The Sony PTS-3? <laughs> yeah. They're often the last person to suspect that they're a PTS because they're mostly found in mental institutions. So oh. people like totally... They've the been, insane man. Right. They've been mistreated so much that they're like completely disconnected. Um, gotcha. All, think everything's bad. But they're only potential until they act out and then they're an SP and they're not KSW. What's KSW? Keep Scientology working. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Yes. Um, the way to fix a type 3 PTS is to give him rest and quiet and no treatment of a mental nature at all. Uh-oh. What? People in mental institutions and the solution is uh-huh. not to give them mental treatment. Great okay. advice. That's... Great. No, Ross, that's bad advice. I'm being sarcastic. I know you're being sarcastic, Ross. I, I know you're being sarcastic, oh my God, but I'm being sarcastic. Oh this is getting too complicated. <laughs> Okay, so then the part that we're really waiting to get to here is PTS handling. So what should you do when someone is a potential trouble source? Yeah, yeah, what do you do? Or when they're a suppressive person, right? So here are the options. A, discover, B, handle, or C, disconnect. (gasps) Right here in black and white. Disconnect. You have it in a book you bought from Scientology at the L. Ron Hubbard Life Exhibition. Yep. Disconnect. So here we go. The term disconnection is defined as a self-determined decision made by an individual that he is not going to be connected to another. It is a severing of a communication line, the route along which a communication travels from one person to another. Then to defend like why this is a normal thing to ask of someone, they say it's much like trying to deal with a criminal. If he will not handle, the society resorts to the only other solution. It disconnects the criminal from the society. Oh, okay. I'm just treating my friends like prison. Oh, okay. My family members. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
I won't go through what like handling is, but like basically it's what it sounds like. Handling is when you're trying to like reason with someone, explain to them why you're in Scientology, for example. These are real examples given. Mm -hmm. Someone's like concerned that you're involved in Scientology. So you explain this is what it is. You shouldn't be worried about it. You try to come to an understanding. Then if they continue to be suppressive i.e. not want you to be in Scientology, mm -hmm. then you disconnect. Okay. Earlier, the use of disconnection in Scientology had been canceled. I'm reading this directly, page 30. Canceled. It had been abused by a few individuals who'd failed to handle situations which could have been handled and who lazily or senselessly disconnected, ah. thereby creating situations even worse than the original because it was the wrong action. But okay. the bare fact is that disconnection is a vital tool in handling PTSness and can be very effective when used correctly. Therefore, the tool of disconnection was restored to use. I like that they have that convenient write-off, though, of really bad situations, just saying, ah, oh, they weren't doing it properly. Right, exactly. Yeah. They should have handled it better. Uh, almost a no true Scotsman right there. Yeah, no true Scotsman fallacy. Look it up. And then it goes on to say, the technology of disconnection is essential in the handling of PTSs. It can and has saved lives and untold trouble and upset. It must be preserved and used correctly. Pretty clear. Yeah, an endorsement of disconnect. Getting rid of people who don't support you being in Scientology. So that was my book. You have fun. Yeah. So you left with that, and I left with my dignity. <laughs> yep. And uh, I felt I had enough Scientology reading material at that point. Sure. We all thanked Sunny and gave her a little round of applause mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. her uh, tour guiding. Yeah, she was lovely. I recommend it. It's a yeah. free thing to do. Oh, it is worth it for the the parting curtains. Oh, it's so good. And the plaques awarded to L. Ron Hubbard. So yeah, stop in. Stop in. Tell them we sent out. you. Not at the beginning. <laughs> or at the beginning. See what happens. <laughs> if you do decide to go and say that Ross and Carrie sent you, please tell us what happens. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. Our co-editor and producer is Ian Kramer. You can check out photos on facebook.com forward slash onrack, O-N-R-A-C. Comment on things, like things, talk to us. We're there. You can also find us on iTunes or wherever finer podcasts are served. Leave us a review there. That would be super duper. Let other people know how much you like the show. And you can support this and all of our investigations by going to maximumfund.org forward slash donate. And guys... Thank you for your support during Max Thank Fun Drive. You. It was huge and amazing. An awesome outpouring of love and support. Uh, during the recent Max Fun Drive, and we greatly thank you for supporting us. Hugely. Huge. And remember... Through ensuing years, L. Ron Hubbard continued advancing the subject until his passing in 1986. His legacy comprises tens of millions of published words and 3,000 recorded lectures. While with over 250 million copies of his books and lectures in circulation, he has inspired a movement spanning all continents and all cultures. So to those who would ask, what kind of man could have founded the only major religion of the 20th century? The answer is simple enough. A man who lived life from the top down and the bottom up. A man who had seen much wisdom and great suffering. A man who spent a quarter of a century bridging the gap between East and West, science and religion. A man such as L. Ron Hubbard.
I am comedian and television writer Guy Branham, and every week on Pop Rocket, I host a fun freewheeling conversation about all the aspects of pop culture you love to love with my friends and co-panelists. Digital strategist Winter Mitchell. Journalist Margaret Wappler. Academic and DJ Oliver Wang. And you guys, this conversation is not just something we do privately. It's available to you through the information superhighway. So please, subscribe to Pop Rocket on iTunes or at MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.